Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. I've been watching uh, a show. Um, I've actually watched it through before, but um, Ashley and I are kind of re-watching it because it's uh, a charming story of friendship uh, between um, characters played by David Tennant and Michael Sheen. If you know them, they're a hilarious uh, duo. Uh, and in this particular show, they play an angel and a demon called Good Omens. And uh, it is a... Uh, <laughs> it's what happens when Christianity has completely lost all power of truth in a culture, and <laughs> the culture is left with nothing but some vague ideas about God, <laughs> about uh, the metaphysics that we espouse here in the Orthodox Church. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's completely, it, it almost has nothing to do with Christianity. <laughs> it's, so, it's so removed from any of the truth that we proclaim. Uh, and one of the ways that that's demonstrated in the show is in recounting the, um, uh, the interactions between this angel and demon throughout the centuries. Uh, it starts, you know, in the Garden of Eden. It hits up uh, Noah in, in the flood. Um, it stops off briefly at uh, the crucifixion of some guy named Jesus, and they're like, why, why are they doing this? The answer is, well, he told everyone to be kind to each other. And so um, even the demon said, well, I feel like that's a bit harsh, you know. And then they move on from there. Jesus is literally uh, just a, a, a bullet point in, in the story as they're recounting everything. It's a, story, it's a Christian story with no Christ, essentially. In the scene where uh, Jesus is uh, depicted briefly, he looks completely helpless. Uh, he's given no words. You don't get any context. He's just some poor man being crucified, right? The Feast of the Transfiguration specifically shows us that Christ was not helpless on the cross, but powerful. Uh, it shows, as St. Ephraim the Syrian says, his kingship before his passion, his power before his death, his glory before his disgrace, his honor before his dishonor, so that when he was arrested and crucified, they, the apostles, might know that he was not crucified through weakness, but willingly by his good pleasure for the salvation of the world. So the first reason, St. Ephraim says, for the transfiguration itself was so that Jesus could communicate via this revelation to the apostles who he was so that at his crucifixion, they would not be um, completely scattered, that they wouldn't lose all faith and run away because three of them had seen the very glory of God shine out from this man who not long afterward in the narrative would be uh, tortured and crucified and laid in a tomb. So given that that's the case, that uh, the essence of this event and of this feast is to show and to remind us who Jesus is, it's interesting that Jesus didn't do this for all of the disciples. It's interesting that he took only three with him, and he went up a mountain set apart, 
Jesus wasn't here trying to reveal his glory to the world. That was not the purpose of the, fe- uh, the, the event of the transfiguration. It was, it was to reveal it to a select few. It was a small injection of hope before uh, what he knew would be the greatest trial that his disciples would have to endure. And so this notion of almost a secret revelation set apart I think is possibly one of the reasons why in the West anyway, this feast day, as glorious as it is, isn't actually a day of obligation. It's a day of devotion. This isn't um, one of the highest ranking feasts. It's a, it's a slightly lower ranking feast. And it wasn't even celebrated universally in the West until I think the 14 or 1500s. So for the few of us who have gathered, who've come up the mountain today <laughs> to see the glory of God, I pray that this is an ejection of hope for us in the midst of a world full of trials. So may the truth of the glory be revealed to us this morning as we uh, celebrate, as we hear the propers, and as we encounter the glory of Christ in the sacrament that he has given to us in the altar. So in the transfiguration, Jesus wants to show his disciples who he is. Why does he want to do that? Well, immediately before this event, in the narratives of the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus has just asked his disciples that very question. Who do people say that I am? Some of them say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus praises Peter for this response. Of course, Three seconds later, he says, get behind me, Satan, to the very same (laughs) disciple. But that's because, you know, none of us are perfect and and we're all uh, doing our best here in this world. But Peter was rewarded, along with James and his brother John, with a confirmation that Peter's answer was correct. Because what do they see on the mountain? They see that Jesus is not Elijah because there's Elijah. They see that he's not one of the prophets because here's Moses, the chief of the prophets. What they do see is that he is the Son of God, as Peter said, because the Father himself affirms this, saying, this is my beloved Son. So the answers given uh, just a a chapter before are now affirmed uh, to be correct, Peter's answer among them. So we see that Jesus is the Son of God here. We also see, however, that he's the Son of Man. Jesus also said to the disciples in that chapter, I tell you, there are some here today that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Now, what did that mean to the disciples when they heard Jesus say that? Well, they knew the story uh, in the Old Testament of the vision, Daniel's vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory to the Ancient of Days and taking up his throne next to him there. But it's interesting All of the disciples actually saw that event, didn't they? In the feast of, well, in the event, now our feast of the Ascension. They see that event that Daniel foresaw in his vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the throne in heaven next to the the Father. And that's what happened. But we don't have a lot of description in that event of the glory of Christ. None None of the language describing that tells of him shining with glory. They just see him hidden by a cloud of glory eventually, and then he's 
beyond their sight. So even though all the disciples did see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, they didn't all see the glory. Only three of them saw that glory, and that was in this event. And so the Son of Man is this title for clearly in, this, in the vision of Daniel, a Yahweh figure, because this Son of Man does something that only Yahweh, the God of Israel, could be doing. And yet, he looks like a human being. What is Daniel to make of that? Here's Yahweh looking like a man. Well, this is, you know, there was a lot of speculation, as, as you would imagine, among the, the Jews from Daniel's vision and its writing onward all the way up through the second temple to when Jesus was teaching. What did this mean? And Jesus asked, you know, some of the teachers and the Pharisees, what do you think of the Son of Man, et cetera, et cetera. He asked them some tough questions, and they didn't know. Of course, Jesus was setting them up because he himself is that Son of Man. And so everyone saw the human likeness, right? But not all of them saw the glory. So what, what is the point of Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man to the disciples just before showing them that glory of the Son of Man. The church fathers say, uh, St. Leo, St. Ephraim, so we have East, West, this is a universal thing, that in the transfiguration, yes, we are seeing the divine glory, we're seeing the Son of God, but we are seeing that glory revealed in the Son of Man. The body of Christ does not disappear, it doesn't get outshone, it doesn't melt away. It's the very body of Christ, his humanity, that is shining. Even his clothing <laughs> shines. So we know that this is the divine life, the divine power, the divine energy, uncreated, transforming matter, right? We get our first hint of this when God becomes incarnate and doesn't destroy the vessel that he chooses to, to bring his divinity into the world. Like the Ark of God, Mary, her body isn't consumed by the power of Christ, or by the power of God inside her. It's, it's ennobled by it. And so now we have the height of this reality shown to three of the disciples, that the body of Christ, the humanity of Christ, is not burned away, but is capable of bearing the very divine power of God. Now, this isn't just a one-off case, right? Where uh, there's only one human body in the world that's ever been able to do that or that ever could do that. Why do we know that? Why do we know that all of humanity is potentially capable of bearing that kind of divine power in life? Because of who the Son of Man is. He is the recapitulation of humanity. Recapitulation means the, the, the you know, Kapas means head. It means he is becoming the new head of humanity. Once, all of humanity was in one man, and that was Adam. But now, all of humanity is in a new head, the second Adam, the true Adam, Jesus Christ. That means all of humanity is now a partaker in his humanity. We all, in our human nature, are a part of Christ's human nature. But are we all partakers of his divine nature? Well, we don't have that uh, promise yet. That seems to be something that we work at. First, we work at that by being put into his death and his resurrection in baptism. 
That's how we're joined to Christ fully. Then we have his Holy Spirit sealed in us, and then we partake of his very body and blood sacramentally by eating. It's through this, and then through a life lived in accordance with these mysteries, that is one of self-giving, love, uh, truthfulness, and honesty, that we become more and more after the likeness of Christ. And as we do that, our humanity will be transformed more and more into uh, the kind of humanity, Christ's humanity, that is capable of bearing the divine life. In fact, we will be filled more and more with that divine life. So the Feast of the Transfiguration is about Jesus showing his disciples, showing us who he is. And who he is is, of course, the Son of God. But also, I think crucially for us to understand, he's the Son of Man. He is the, the true human being who becomes our new head, our new source, so that we, all sharing in the same humanity, Christ's humanity, can see what our human nature is capable of. It's capable of bearing the divine fire of God. So, this concept, deification, the church speaks about it you know, uh, elegantly through all of her fathers. St. Peter gives us the language of partaking of the divine nature. This is what our Christian life is all about, partaking of that glory and becoming more and more like God through Jesus Christ. So it turns out, actually, that Jesus is not a bullet point in the story. He's the center. Good Omens has gotten it completely and terribly wrong. I don't I don't blame the author of that book. He's just uh, putting into words what the culture has already accepted, that Jesus isn't important. And that's, frankly, the fault of the followers of Jesus for failing to show that Jesus is not only important, Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is our humanity summed up, glorified, deified. He is our connection, our mediator, to God, so that God's power can fill us, and that we eventually will, as uh, our prayers today say, become partakers of the divine nature as Christ became a partaker of our humanity. So may the glory of that truth shine into our hearts today, and may we come down from this mountain this morning back into the world encouraged um, as we face the trials ahead of us in life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.